0: Hello, welcome to another episode of Return on Character with me, Dan Cooper, your host, the founder of Rock Investments, an investment strategy that allocates capital on the basis of the character of the public company CEOs. And the reason we have this podcast is to talk to people that think character matters. And I... Would struggle to find somebody that would think that would matter more than anybody than Shannon Sedgwick Davis, my dear, one of my dearest friends. Uh, We've known each other for 20-plus years. Uh, We've been on adventures together, and I am so grateful for the opportunity to share you with the Return on Character podcast. Welcome, Shannon.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: It's nice to have you here. Shannon uh, is the CEO of the Bridgeway Foundation. Um, and I would, I, I kind of like for her to start uh, because it's so unusual and it's such a wonderful story. Uh, I'd love for you to start how you began your career in social justice and uh, the fight for kind of the the less of these in the world. And maybe a little bit is to kind of where that where that itch oriented? Like, where did it come from in you to fight for justice and 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 do good in the world? Because you have a disproportionate dose of it, whatever it is. I mean, you. I'm I, I going to go off a lot, but I mean, if ever there's a crisis in the world, and it could be in her circles, it could be floods in Texas. Shannon's there. She's showing up and helping. Uh, people. And and I just think you're so unique and I love your heart. But tell us how it started with you. How did you feel? When did you first feel empowered to actually make a difference in the world?
1: Well, you know, I think it's interesting because you, uh, you mentioned sort of working with uh, what you'd say is uh, sort of what's considered the least of these in this world. And for me, it, they're they're actually sort of the most of us, right? The best of us. Um, and that's been a huge, um, that's been a huge, uh, this work's all been such a privilege. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, it often doesn't feel like helping at all, right? It feels like being able to participate in these grand and extraordinary plans um uh, that people have for exacting you know, uh, transformational change in their communities in a way that often I don't I don't witness uh, in, in sort of everyday life here in, uh, in Texas where I live. Um, yeah, so first and foremost, it's just such an extraordinary privilege um, As to your your question, I think um, I think it's rooted in a sense or has always been rooted in a sense of justice, um, think uh, the idea of justice just made my heartbeat a little faster uh, from a really young age. And
0: do you remember a moment where there was an incident that kind of triggered that for you and became as a young younger person?
1: Uh, you know, I my parents often talk about how, I, you know, when I was in, you know, middle school, I would bring home stray animals and then sort of when I got to high school, I would bring home stray humans, uh, you know, different friends or somebody who'd been yeah. kicked out of their house or something. Um, but no, I think it really was something that was always there. I was really fortunate that my parents um, always, you know, didn't, didn't try to give me answers or tell me what I should do with my life, but often just ask questions and sure. um, ask questions about uh, my interest. And then were curious, right, when I would when I would feel strongly about something, right? Why do you think you feel strongly about that, Shannon? Um, And I I think that just really helped define for me at a much younger age than I think some people get to have that defined uh, just exactly what it is that maybe I was sort of built to do in the world. And it did, it seemed to center in and around justice. Uh, That led me to law school because most people assume that justice, passion, and, you know, equals law school. However, um, you know, I haven't practiced. I only practiced law for a very short time. Uh, my law degree was very instrumental and helpful and still continues to be in some of the work I do. But, um, you know, I think, I think I was really fortunate on both those fronts, just identifying early something that a theme in my life that um, was really important and having parents that just uh, have really let me pursue that and didn't feel the need to sort of quantify it or nail it down.
0: When you were in law school, just give us the date, just so we have context. Uh, but what were, were there some specific justice uh, opportunities that you took initiative around to try to make a difference in people's lives? And was that kind of the early stages of of, of kind of exercising that legal mind of yours to be able to make make change?
1: Yeah. So I. I... I started law school in 1998 and graduated in 2000, um, and actually, you know, intervening in that time in 1999, there were some awful earthquakes in Turkey, in Adapazar and Golchik in Turkey, which is really interesting timing, right, because we've just seen uh, a series of earthquakes in Turkey uh, recently right. that um, were even potentially worse than those, um, which were horrific in 1999. And so, I um, during spring break, I went over on a trip to Turkey and thought that I would help with some relief work. And uh, what I found when I was there was that I was more drawn to some issues of injustice uh, rather than just direct relief work there. Uh-huh. So uh, I would take the ferry every day, Istanbul you know, it has a, a ferry that runs through it that's sort of it's it's half on Asia, right, and half in Europe. And so I would take the the ferry boat in the mornings and at the landing where we would catch the ferry boat, uh, there were street children, um, that oftentimes were sort of forced to sniff glue, right? And and beg for funds. And I, I kind of befriended one of those boys, one of the younger ones, a boy named Pilar. And um we became Fast friends over that that period of time. Uh, in the morning, I would come and um, you know, I first I just gave him money, and then I watched this older man sort of take his money right after I gave it to him. So then I thought, oh, I'll be smart, right, and I will buy him food and give him food. But then I saw a bunch of people take the food from him after I did that, and so I, I, that was also a life lesson, right? A life lesson in presence. It's almost like let's discharge charge the guilt, Shannon, and toss some money over to this kid uh, versus actually, you know. Doing something meaningful and choosing to be present with that child. So, and I got, I got, I wised up and would would buy some food for him or buy a coke for him or something, and then we would sit down together while he ate it or drank it, um, and uh, so that it wasn't then taken by someone else. And that was just an interesting time. It was, it was really um, solidifying for me that again, this this idea of justice was something that I, I wanted to pursue. Um, that justice takes many forms, and I still learn about that today, right? I learn in a lot of the areas and the environments I work. I've learned a lot about, you know, that we probably pretty narrowly define justice here in the United States, and that justice is much, much broader than that and, and much more powerful than that.
0: So you finished law school. and Where did you go from there?
1: Did. Um, I practiced law for a short time, um, in Dallas. And then I uh, joined the International Justice Mission. It's got the name Justice in there, even. Um, and got to do some work, against some international work uh, around different... Uh, this was different the very intros-
0: beginning. This is really... I mean, lots of people probably have heard of International Justice yeah. Mission now, but what number of employee were you? Or
1: I think I was like, employee six. We were in a tiny... That- not tiny, that's not true. We were in a, a rather large home, but we were in a house in Virginia. You know, that was our office space. Um, And it was an interesting time. It's uh, International Justice Mission's based in Washington, D.C. It was a really interesting time to be there. It was was the first time that I'd ever lived anywhere outside of Texas. And um, 9-11 happened during that time. Uh, Those... Those shootings uh, that were happening with that uh, that boy and that man—they occurred. One of the shootings occurred in right outside of, of where my um, my townhouse townhouse was at the time. There were some pretty major sort of world events that were occurring, or American events that were occurring uh, during my time in DC. Um, and I wasn't there often because I was traveling a lot for work. But um, but, but you it was, guys,
0: you and Gary and and the team. Exposed what ended up being kind of an international exposure to some of the um, the abuses going on in Cambodia. I mean that was a that was a big that was a big thing to be a part of. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, we had been investigating some some human trafficking um, issues in Southeast Asia, and specifically in Cambodia, and even more specifically in a, in a village called Pa in Cambodia and, um, an area where young, young girls were being, yeah being sold for sex and oftentimes to Western men. I mean, that was an interesting thing. Um, including a doctor who at the time was from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and so we, uh, we did, we put together a, um, an investigative case, um, did a, did quite a bit of, um, data gathering uh, to understand the scope of the problem and then you know i was um i was on the ground when we we did a raid on uh those various brothels and were able to secure uh some of those uh those girls those young girls out of those brothels uh, we we brought we for a multitude of reasons we ended up bringing dateline nbc with us and they later did a piece called children for sale
0: about that time on the ground, I mean that was a that is is what I recall is that was a pretty seminal piece that really opened up the doors and highlighted that specific doctorate and what they were doing and brought brought the challenges that were happening there home to actual real Americans participating in it. It was quite it was it was extraordinary. Um,
1: I think that's what, right. I mean justice though is interesting, right? Because there's different forms and. That was one of the most frustrating things is uh, the perpetrators, the gentlemen who were using the girls, um, a lot of them didn't really see that that day in court the same way that the brothel owners did. Right. Right. Well, that's the
0: that's the ever present tension that that I know from knowing you that you constantly have to deal with in your heart, you know. Um, And it's also the tension that you. It's kind of part of the deal. When you do what you do, you show up and you expose you expose your heart, your yourself to these human challenges that uh, that that oftentimes hurt and uh, don't always go perfectly to plan. Um, and you and I have done that together over the years, um, but it's something that takes a toll. And uh, I, I've always witnessed that in you, and you've handled it with such grace, and you never ever have shied away from the fight. Um, let me, let, let's pivot a little bit. Um, so those are kind of your formative years of justice on the ground, out of academics and schooling, uh, out of Texas, where you're from, San Antonio. Um, tell us a little bit about um, what you ended up doing in Africa and how you found uh, that that, uh, that mission. Shannon wrote a book called To Stop a Warlord about her and uh, a group of extraordinary people that came together to try to make a debt in the LRA. Uh, with that, I'm just going to stop because I want you to start the story. I want to hear how you first even got the inkling of taking on what most people would say is, is literally impossible to try and do.
1: Yeah, I know. It, it's really interesting, right? So I spent that time at International Justice Mission and learned, oh my gosh, learned so much, had just some extraordinary mentors, and, um, and then ended up um, working as um, CEO of a foundation that um, is based out of Bridgeway Capital Management called Bridgeway Foundation. And um, we had a mission statement that was quite audacious. Uh, it is a world without genocide and mass atrocity. And so what we were doing is we were providing grants out of our profitability to try and stop mass atrocity in a number of places. And so we had a huge grant portfolio with all different types of grants across multiple countries, um, you know, up to 200 grants one year. And what I realized, you know, several years into it was we weren't actually executing on our mission statement. So we were going to have to make a really hard decision. We were either going to have to change our mission statement or try and do what our mission statement said. So we were doing some incredible work sort of prior to an atrocity or even during an atrocity in terms of awareness and funding activism and research on the atrocities, trying to encourage the United Nations or the U.S. government maybe to get engaged in certain issues. And then we were doing a lot of work on the back end, sort of in the recovery phase, right? Somebody, a warlord goes and burns down a school, you know, providing funding to sort of get that school back up and rebuild. Um, but our mission statement was really in the center, right? It was in between those two things. It's, it was about stopping mass atrocity or stopping genocide. And our grants just really weren't going to do that. And so kind of looked in the mirror and said, are we going to change our mission statement? Or are we going to try to do what we say uh, that we're setting out to do. And we decided to try and do what we said we were setting out to do. And so we looked across the grant portfolio at different things we've been funding. And um, it, it felt like we had to pick one thing, right? Because that was such a huge idea, just even the idea of, of piloting that and seeing if it could work. Uh, we certainly couldn't be across, you know, 20 countries and, and you know, 200 grants. And so uh, as we looked across that portfolio, the sort of lowest hanging fruit, at least, um, it, to me and to the board, really looked like um, the situation with the LRA, which at the time was Africa's longest-running war, uh, the group that Joseph Kony uh, was, was commanding at the time. And we had been funding uh, several groups that were doing advocacy work on that, and we had been funding some groups that were, were helping with uh, people who had come out. Uh, from fighting on the LRA, so yeah, we picked that one, and that led to you know a solid decade of work in um, Central Africa Republic, uh, northeastern Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, South Sudan.
0: Well, Shannon, um, how would you say you did you you engage that problem differently? than say maybe other organizations that were trying to participate in helping solve the problem
1: well i think first you know we just we chose to intervene in the conflict right versus sort of again funding on either end of the the spectrum of a conflict and um and that's weird i mean there wasn't a model there wasn't a blueprint for intervening in a conflict we um but what
0: does that mean? Like intervening? Does that mean like you show up in between the two parties and say, "Stop! Stop! Stop!" Okay, not, no, we're not going to do this. I mean, how, how did you guys come up with a plan to even begin executing on? What was the, what was one of your first early aha uh-huh or moves uh, in 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 the direction that kind of ended up somewhat work?
1: Well, because we had been funding already so much on the advocacy side for that um, particular conflict and even somewhat on the aftercare side, uh, we did have some incredible resources and organizations that just knew a whole lot about the conflict, you know, that we were able to learn from, including a lot of community-based organizations that were on the ground, right, hearing directly from the source. And there were two themes that just kept emerging about why this conflict was perpetuating. Uh, The first was just a lack of ability in these very remote areas uh, where there's no cell service, um, oftentimes, you know, not even sat phone service, um, for these communities to warn each other, right, as the LRAs come in. Because the LRA would often tear through a village and then just a day or two later tear through the next village, right? And, and one village doesn't even know that the other is, um, is facing sort of, you know, imminent attack. And so, you know, one was communications, just lack of regional communications and ability for these communities to uh, to talk to each other and warn each other. Uh, the second gap that was missing was uh, the Ugandan army and ultimately what became the African Union army uh, that was trying to pursue these um, perpetrators. They uh, were lacking some, some pretty um, basic training in some sense in terms of training for the environment that they were having to pursue this enemy in. And so, you know, this originally started in Uganda, but uh, the terrain now that these Ugandan troops were having to pursue uh, these perpetrators in were, you know, three additional countries um, with with far different terrain at times. And so they needed some training to sort of bridge the gap between, um, you know, between what they currently already uh, knew how to do and what was more conventional for them and the way the LRA operated and what they might need to be able to be opportunistic about trying to stop the LRA. So those were the two themes that emerged. And obviously the first theme made sense. It's like, okay, communications, we can do that. And we did. And it was awesome. I mean, it was just extraordinary. We found these amazing community leaders. Uh, Through the Catholic Church, um, some extraordinary heroes uh, who just did had some incredible ideas, including just these HF radio systems that would go up on bamboo poles that they could pull down. And they started radioing into each other and reporting attacks and being able to warn um, of impending attacks. But something that came out of that was even further intelligence about how the LRA was operating, right? Which actually meant that the training was even more needed for the troops because there truly was a way to exploit how the LRA was operating and potentially be able to stop them uh, if there was the requisite training. And so then, you know, a few months into that, we explored the idea of doing, um, of providing some training. That part was weird. That part was not. Usual definitely wasn't a blueprint for that. Definitely hadn't come across anyone who'd done that before that we could sort of piggyback on what they'd learned, and uh, we set about just designing something like that that um, we could.
0: You went out and and found. (laughs) It wasn't like that. You got to the military and said, "Hey, you know, there's this person, you know, a guy over here that would really love some help. You know, he'd be great." coaching our, our, our guys, you went out and found some of the most uh, interesting characters to, that, that that had been in, involved in Africa and placed them for the Ugandans to, to bring their, their troops up to uh, a fighting level that would actually cause the LRA to begin to lose its grip of terror on the entire region. Um, I mean, I, for those that that don't know, Shannon, the first, the LRA was kind of w- often seen as the most evil element in the world that was existing, operating, and, and creating and causing an uh, incredible amount of pain and atrocities on the ground in Uganda. Um, and Shannon, I would sometimes call her, and she would be, uh, on the other line, and she'd say, "Hey, oh, hold on, we got we, we got some troop movements going on, and and uh, and our guys are in there, and we think we got uh, uh, or preventing another raid by the LRA." This was not just a casual. Oh, let me let me intervene. Uh, you and your team, Laren and Paul and others, uh, were intimately uh, involved in this. Uh, not just from a funding and strategy point, but you guys were actually on the ground, weren't you? I mean, you were there.
1: Well, you helped me out, Dan. You know I was there. You came out and joined me one time when we uh, we were launching a raid on a, a large uh, LRA element, and we knew we were going to have quite a bit of women and children, and we just needed extra sets of hands, and that's something that's so extraordinary about you is you just didn't hesitate when I asked if you'd jump on a plane and join us.
0: Well, and it's just this little bush plane that she hired, uh, and it was my 40th birthday, and I got on and found her and Laren at a dirt runway uh, in the middle of uh, Africa. Uh, We slept in tents and uh, on the ground, and, and, I mean, it was the most... It was a classic military environment, and there my friend Shannon was smiling and gave me a big hug when I got off the plane. I mean... Trying to paint, if you will, just kind of the some of the 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 way the challenges that you guys had, the duration of the struggle uh, and the degree in which, you know, you really kind of up to your chin in this, you know, every day. How did you manage all that?
1: Yeah, no, it was uh, it was extraordinarily challenging. It was um There were a lot of different aspects that had to be managed uh, that I wouldn't have foreseen. Uh, You know, our advocacy ended up working. We had been bugging the US government for so long to send some troops to help on this mission. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't. You know, then we went and did this training. And then a few months later, they did, right? So then we had US troops there, but that actually complicated things at times because it was just really challenging to understand everyone's roles. and yeah, I mean, some of the most dangerous things that we did was you know, the air platforms, right We're landing on a dirt runway at best, right? oftentimes just a, a makeshift runway and some other things like this. Logistics were a nightmare because we were out in what national geographic you know called you know one of the most undiscovered places on the continent um you know, it just it it was it was it was rife with challenges i I look back now um Fairly exhausted, and I don't, I don't know where all of our energy came from. I know it, it, it came from the collective, right? Um, it, there were so many extraordinary people of goodwill that just wrapped themselves around this issue and just said, "Enough is enough," and we don't have to accept this. We don't have to accept this about humanity, and it was people from. All walks of life. It was um, it was people from multiple countries, um, you know, and all of us were taking our cues from uh, those people on the ground who were affected by the problem. Right? It was this beautiful, um, uh, truly extraordinary and unusual in some ways for philanthropy. Where those on the ground that were affected by the problem were the ones calling the shots, and uh, and were allowing us to plus their efforts, and um, it was just this moment in time of um, there was an ego there, um, or there often wasn't. There wasn't um, this this sort of pride of ownership. There was it was all about this this sort of messy cobbled together collective. Um, that really all had a pure vision um, right. at the end of the day for what they wanted. And we got some pretty cool stuff done. I mean, we saw just an extraordinary decrease in the abductions and killings. Uh, two of the three first ever International Criminal Court indictees uh, were removed from the battlefield. One has already stood trial now at The Hague um, and was arrested in these operations. It it was... um it's hard to look back at it and, and feel like it was real. Um, it was a really unique, a really unique decade.
0: Yeah, so 10 years. Oh. And you had two little boys.
1: Dead. Oh, Mama was going back and forth.
0: Two little boys uh, and and Shannon was rappelling on a helicopters uh, and I would oftentimes find her in between you know these these big giant military men working out uh, differences of conflicts. Um, she was uh, she was a bridge, an unlikely bridge that nobody would expect uh, would show up in 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 one of the worst places on the planet. Um, and I saw I saw the way you worked, and um, I mean uh, it, your courage uh, during those days was extraordinary, your tenacity, ears and lairs, um, the tenacity was incredible. Because lots of times, and this is maybe something that we could speak to, is that you didn't get good news. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't like, oh, you know, this this week we got, you know, we get all this. And I mean, most of the time it was bad news, right? How do you deal with that? Like how do you how do you deal with bad news all the time and keep showing up
1: for 10 years yeah it's hard it's hard to find a lot of good news in war you know it's all about perspective um but you know there there'd be these moments right um one time we we did a massive defection campaign and we saw 46 walk out um it had been cloudy all day, right? And uh, as the helicopter landed, some of our helicopters and these women with children, some carrying infants still in their arms, disembarked from the helicopter. And the clouds parted. And the sun just shined, right? And it just shines off this red clay that we were standing on. Just everybody sparkled. And, oh my yeah. gosh, like that gives you enough oxygen like for the next year, right? It's yeah, just like for sure. wow, that yeah. matters. That yeah. counts. Yeah. And you know, I think that's something we're dealing with now. We're we're focused um in part right now on you know, Ukraine. And that situation again, it's just another situation where you just feel bolted to your chair in despair. I mean, you just you're just like, This how is this going on? How is it allowed to happen first and foremost? How does it keep happening? Look at this loss of life we're facing and these incredible treasures of people. I mean, just the bravest and the best of us. Um, we're just letting perish from the globe and we're just watching. And, you know, I I still have to sometimes reflect on some of what we experienced, uh, you know, there in Central Africa. Um to remember that when we push goodness out when we pursue it and we p- pursue it purely uh, that it does count and that it may take us a little bit to see how and why it counts um, but that it does count um, but yeah it's, a, it's challenging it is friend
0: Well, um, so you've gone to visit with Zelensky in Ukraine a couple of times there right Yes And um she went uh with our mutual friend Howard Buffett the champion of champions uh and and then some other interesting characters if you want to mention it I would love to hear your how that? How those trips were? What was your impression? Uh, given the context that we are all facing collectively in the in the world today, you know this this is on the forefront of we, all, uh, you know all the newspapers and what's what's your what was it like going, and um, and what are you doing today to try to to the to push the needle in, in, in the direction of good. Yeah, yeah. So
1: I mean. It- what I learned, you know, in, in all of my prior work, right, is there's this idea of, again, presence, right? Not just, again, even back to the story I told about Pilar, sitting with Pilar, right? I mean, really? not what I wanted to do. I wanted to hand him some money and then, like, go do my thing. Um, this idea of presence not only should not be discounted. I, I mean, it probably is the single most important thing, at least in the work that we do. And uh, being fully present requires deep listening and deep understanding. And that's where solutions emerge. I mean, this idea that we would ever have a solution for a problem that's that's far off our shores and um, that's comical, you know, for me to think about, oh, my children just being kidnapped and brought into a warlord's army or something. I mean, I just, I'm not capable of putting my 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 mind into their mind or my heart into their heart. And so it being deeply present, listening, um, that is where uh, solutions will emerge. That's where ideas come. And then there's maybe a small role that we have to play in that, um, whether it be by financing some of those solutions or promoting them or advocating where uh, their voices may not reach at any given time. And and so, uh, you know, very much the sort of same Theory applies to our work in Ukraine. So the the idea first was just to go um, and be present, and and just to determine in in our presence if there was a meaningful way uh, for us to engage uh, the problem, the problem set there, and um, and and do even maybe just the teeniest of things to alleviate some of the suffering. Uh, you, Ukraine does not, you know, there are no planes flying in Ukraine and there haven't been since the start of the war. So um, that makes things extremely challenging in terms of logistics and transport. So uh, when you say, what was it like? I mean, uh, generally speaking, we land uh, in Poland and uh, and then take a car to the border and then um, take a train into the capital. So uh, and the train into Kiev usually takes about eleven hours. Um, so I mean, Ukraine's huge, right? I mean, so few people I think understand how massive of a country it is. Um, again, sort of the fourth largest producer of grain in the world, right? I mean, it's just extraordinary country. And so, uh, what's beautiful, you know, that first train ride and it almost is a little it's felt a little Harry Potterish, right? We'd go on this little platform and we'd go into this train and oh my gosh, the rail system in Ukraine has been the backbone of this country during this war. I mean, it, it is extraordinary. They'll have rail lines blown up and within hours uh, they've repaired them. I mean, it, it, the rail system is literally the backbone right now of this country. And so as we ride in the train, you know, Getting a chance to look outside the windows and and see this country and um, see this country in its current um, in its current way, and then uh, you know get out in and Kyiv um, and 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 then spend some time and we spent some time in the areas that uh, had been affected by war had had entire streets leveled, um, uh, awful awful destruction. And at, my biggest takeaway is. I um and I think now that we've we've talked about some of my my history and my work history I am not sure that I've ever encountered a more courageous population. Uh they don't there's not space for fear. It doesn't feel like when you're with them. Um they have an extraordinary leader and President Zelensky, I mean, just, just that interaction with him, you know, I put on my suit, I'm going to the president's office or whatever, and he's there in his T-shirt and, you know, fatigues and just gregarious, a smile, uh, you know, just an ease that doesn't, it's incomprehensible almost in light of what in the he's moment. Had, yeah. the to be truly incomprehensible. Um, his history as a comedian, I think almost is helpful in some sense, you know, he'll smile, he'll make a, a joke here and there. He creates an ease so quickly that, um, that you want to follow him anywhere, uh, and, uh, and that you want to do anything and everything, uh, to help him. He's able to create that, that ease almost instantly. I mean, he's just so extraordinary. And, um, and his people are are like that as well i mean they just it's a group of people that um yeah that failure's not an option and fear uh often is not and uh, they're sacrificing everything and on their backs um the the free world is is yep. standing right now and
0: to me it's uh, interesting that, uh you be in better position to, uh, to speak to it. But uh, is it not an interesting example of high character leadership versus very very low character leadership, and 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 the study in contrast. I mean, to bring it back around, I mean, our focus is trying to probably identify the whiskeys in public companies today, but we also believe the four character havocs is integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion apply to political leaders. Mm. You know, what would be your thoughts on that as it relates to what you observed there?
1: Yeah, I don't know that you could have a, a more stark comparison, right? Uh, right? Versus Zelensky, who, and I've, I've been so honored in my life, I have met some pretty extraordinary leaders, like some yeah. greats of all greats. And I would say, you know, Zelensky is the most extraordinary leader of, of our time. Um, but, our generation, and then uh, and then Putin, who um, who exists at this point to destroy. Yeah, I mean he uh, is is evil incarnate. Um, horrific levels of evil and um, courage, right? Integrity over here with Zelensky. Yeah, fear with putin yeah zero integrity we'll kidnap your children and we'll adopt them out and you know i mean it's literally like going back to awful what history has taught us that we promised we would never repeat he's just repeating and repeating um and selfishness and also a lack of concern for his own people too right like this is the crazy part this is what we're we're just it's like your your heart also just breaks for most of these Russian men who've been sent over to fight this war because a they've been misled or lied to, and b they don't want to be there, but they don't have a choice. Um, oh, it's
0: yeah, awful. it's a it's a it's one of the most uh, irrelevant contrasts in in selfless leadership versus selfish leadership. You know. Uh, we just happen to be experiencing it today, um, and uh, it's, it's a big motivator of return on character is that we have to find a way to affirm leaders of character um, in the world and discourage the belief that it's going to be okay if we, if we put That's in power right. leaders that don't have the character. And Yes. Um,
1: and the urgency, Dan, we have to show up for those leaders and we have to show up on time. We just have to. Like enough is enough. Like we have to show up for those leaders and show up on time and we will leave a much brighter world for our grandchildren if we do. Yeah,
0: that's beautiful. Well, my my friend, um, I've used a lot of your time today. I'm grateful for you um, and and our friendship, um, the time that you've spent in this world to make a difference and and be able to work together at different times. I should say for the record, um, so Rock Investments um, is uh, majority owned by Bridgeway Capital Management. Bridgeway Capital Management is the organization that also has supported and walked along Shannon's Bridgeway Capital, our Bridgeway uh, um, Foundation. And so we are are, uh, intimately linked with what, um, we give a call out to John Montgomery, the founder of Bridgeway Capital Management, uh, has, he opens up these kinds of things to happen in the world. He empowers people like Shannon and me to go and try to push in the direction of good in whatever category we may be good at working in. And if it wasn't for Bridgeway Capital Management, uh, neither one of us would be able to do what we're doing. And, um, I mean, maybe less so now, Shannon, you come off from the races and you hang out with all the big big dogs. But, um, but it is truly an honor to be joined at the hip through Bridgeway Capital Management. And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that. everybody that that's a link
1: grateful for that too and grateful for john john's a true visionary and john lives in a world that he wants to see exist and models it in his own life
0: all right thank you shannon
1: thank you dan